0: Welcome to the Central City Podcast. I'm Joe Graves, a pastor at Central City Church, and uh, excited to have you with us. Um, we're changing a few things on our podcast, so I wanted to let you know that. Um, we've started sharing our testimonies, our faith stories, every week in church. And we've decided to include these as part of our podcast so that you can hear um, real people talk about uh, their relationship with God in real ways. So at the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear a brief story, about four or five minutes. And then after that, we'll get into the sermon for the week and uh, whatever series we're in. So thanks for listening, and we hope that God meets you during this time.
1: I'm Andrea Wilkins, and I'm excited to share a little bit more about myself and my journey. Um, first, I didn't grow up in the church. I actually, my mom was raised Jewish, and my father was raised Jehovah Witness. So what that meant to me is we didn't go to church, but we did celebrate the fun parts of the holidays, so we didn't really know the meaning behind them. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, and I have two brothers and a sister, and we really had a loving and sweet family. I've always had a great support system surrounding myself, but one of the things that I was missing was truly valuing and loving myself, which I didn't know that until a few years ago. I had a rough few years in my mid-20s. I got married, I had a baby girl, and then I got divorced three years later. Um, that was a really tough time as I had a 12-month-old girl. And I was on my own. Fast forward to about three years ago when I had a really sweet friend encourage me to go to church. So I decided to try Rock City. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Uh, I felt so much community and love. And I didn't feel alone anymore. And those next nine months were inspiring and I was learning so much about the person that I wanted to become and I felt peace knowing that God loves me and that I was forgiven I decided to get baptized in November of 2019 and I was excited but I had very little expectation Uh, it was one of the most special and meaningful days uh, of my life I felt God there with me I burst into tears when I came out and my family and friends were there to greet me, coming out a new woman in Christ. So rewind back to that sweet friend that encouraged me to go to church. Uh, That guy was Ryan Wilkins, and (laughs) he truly saved me. Not only is he the man of my dreams, but the man that saved my life and brought me to God. As many of you know, we got married back in March, and. I've never felt more loved and understood by another person. That taught me, he taught me what true love is, and it taught me what a God-centered relationship is. Through Ryan and God's love, I've really learned how to love and value myself. As many of you know, I have a daughter, and Ryan has three kids. Therefore, we got to blend a beautiful family that we refer to as the Wilkins tribe. Blending a family is not always easy. Um, There are some really tough times, but I wouldn't change it for the world. And it leads me to three pieces of advice that I've really learned and leaned into over the last few years. Number one, the Bible verse that really spoke to me that I lean on during hard times and good times is Colossians 3, the message version. Uh, It's so chosen by God for this new life of love. Dress in a wardrobe that God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, and discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Number two, it's okay to struggle and pray and have really hard times. Just know that God is right there beside you and that there are so many blessings to come, even if you can't see them. Number three, I truly believe that gratitude is the key to happiness, remembering what we are thankful for and continuing to love and serve others well. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Today we're going to transition to our sermon and I'm excited. I'm always excited when we kick off a new sermon series and today we're doing that. We just finished a, se- a pretty hard series of weeks um, and uh, you know it's been interesting because we've had, uh, this is our first, um, this is kind of our first couple months in the space and uh, um, you know a lot of people are joining us online still and then we've had a fair number of visitors online and in person and then every week it's been a hard topic. and uh, Which is good because that's pretty accurate to who we are uh, so you kind of learn that right from the start if you're visiting with us. Uh, but we are going to transition to a, what a sermon series. I hope it's going to be a little bit more fun than some of the other conversations. As important as they are, um, we're going to be talking about food. To start out, though, group question, and I'll even pull up the chat. So if you're online, you can you can tune in as well. Um, what is the strangest thing you've eaten or has been eaten in your presence? I'll go first. Duck tongue. Yeah. I guess it's a delicacy in Vietnam, and I was in Vietnam with a seminary group, and we had a guy, you know, that guy, I don't know if you've traveled internationally with a group of people, but there's always, like, one guy. It's usually a guy. It could be a girl that just finds the most ridiculous thing on the menu, and he did, and some of them were crazy. I think he had snake at one point, but I think duck tongue was probably at the top of the list. They didn't... Turns out there's a way to eat duck tongue. He didn't eat it correctly, um, but it looked like a plate of fries. Like, it was... Yeah, so anyone else? Can you beat duck tongue? What's the craziest thing you've eaten or or somebody's eaten in your presence? Yeah. Fish stomach soup. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Anyone else? Yeah, Ben. Grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. Chili powder? I was at a, like a wilderness ministry camp thing when I was a kid, and one of the exercises was eating, like we picked them out of the field and tore off the legs and ate them. I did do that, yeah. No chili powder. That would have been better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim, up here. Sound. Steamed, Steamed cattails. You like and you eat it like corn on the cob. I love the instructions. Some of these food needs a little instructions I found. Anyone else? Any other good ones? Ooh, very good, very good. Um, someone said on the chat that, that their brother-in-law puts maple syrup on their scrambled eggs. So that's, that's that sounds, that reminds me of the McDonald's um, sandwich, you know, that's got syrup and that thing's terribly unhealthy for you. And I still can't not get it. Well, today we're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, a lot of cultures respond to food in different ways. That's why when we go to other cultures, it's a, sometimes a strange experience. Like um, guinea pig isn't so uncommon in parts of South America, but the idea of eating it might be a little strange to us. The reason we're going to talk about food is because food is one of the primary holders of, of meaning in the Bible. Food is used throughout the Bible to communicate God's purpose and will in this world in deeply profound ways. Think about it. I'm going to take you on a little journey here. I got I got my Bible uh, right here. This isn't actually my Bible. It's like little big for me, but uh, I got this Bible here. I went and marked it out. You know, if you start right at the beginning, beginning, you had Genesis chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. Chapter three of Genesis is the story of the fall. It holds all of this theological understanding of what it means for humans to be broken. And it's a story of a guy and a girl doing what? Eating. It's a story of eating the wrong thing. Right from the very beginning of the Bible, you see that food was set apart by God, and there were some things you could eat, and there were other things that you weren't supposed to eat, and if you ate those things, it became this deep metaphor for what it meant to fall away from God. If you continue in the story, you go to the next book of the Bible, Exodus, it's this uh, story the people of Israel, generations later, end up in slavery. Powerful story. You've probably seen the movie. The book's a little better, but powerful story of ending up in slavery and God says I'm going to deliver my people and he sends Moses to deliver them and the Egyptians are like I'm not letting your I won't let your people go and he's like let my people go maybe you sing the song in camp let my people go and so God sends these plagues one after the other and they still won't let the people go all the way to the point where he takes the firstborn but he tells the Israelites to take blood of a lamb and put it over the doorstep and the angel of death will pass over that house. And then they're told right after that that every year you're going to relive this event, this, this event of salvation, God passing over you, death missing you by celebrating Passover. And do you know what Passover is? It's a meal where you eat. And each thing that you eat means something. And if you've not done a Passover, if you've sat in at a Seder dinner and had someone kind of explain it, it's a, it's a profound experience. Go on to the next chapter of the next book. You have the book of Leviticus. And guess what Leviticus is? It's a book of law. And it's all of these laws. And there's entire chapters dedicated to what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat. If you go on to the next chapter, the next book later in Leviticus, there's this, uh, there's rules around sacrifice. And one of the things that we we kind of get confused around, animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, we kind of think that is barbaric and all this sort of stuff. But a lot of the sacrifices were actually more like a feast. So you got to think of like a hog roast. You take an animal and you sacrifice it um, through this religious ceremony. But then a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times you'd actually, the priests and all the people would hang out and they would eat. It was a, it was a feast, but the, killing of the animal was this deep metaphor, what it meant for death to be placed onto them and not onto us. Once again, food was involved as well as the, the, the feast. And then you go to the next book, the book of Numbers. The people of Israel get out of Egypt and they end up in the wilderness wandering. And there's this picture, they're they're told of this promised land, which is this beautiful picture of what it means to enter into this new life with God. And the promised land is described as a place flowing with milk and honey. Food. Which is the perfect way to describe a destination, isn't it? Have you ever told someone about your favorite des- vacation destination and not talk about the food that you ate? No, of course not. You know, you've you got to talk about the food that you ate. And the promised land was a place flowing with milk and honey. Now, you might not be into milk and honey. Uh, that might not be, you know, your ideal destination food but that, for the people of Israel, is like this is the perfect, you know, the best tacos and the, the best margaritas. Like that's what, that's how that translates. The land flowing with milk and honey of sweet and of cream. And on the way there, though, they, they start to get really hungry. And God has to provide them for food. And there's a story where manna would fall from earth. Every day, manna would fall. like bread on the ground. And they'd go and they'd pick it up. We prayed about this earlier. I don't know if you missed it, but the Lord's Prayer says, Give us today our daily bread. It's referencing the story of manna coming to earth every day to provide for us. So going all the way back to the story in Numbers, it's about food, where God is providing. Now, if you skip all the way to the New Testament, it continues to be about food. Jesus' first miracle is turning water into Wine. Later on, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Most of Jesus' stories was about feeding people or talking about food. Most, a lot of his parables are about food or about the stuff that eventually leads to food. And um, we're going to talk about that in a little bit later. But then he even, uh, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. Going again, once to going back to manna once again. This idea of manna falling. Jesus now is our daily bread that we need every day. You going on to the book of Acts and there's this story that we'll talk about maybe today if we get time, uh, where uh, Peter is going to open up the church to all people. And unless you were a Hebrew, the church wasn't really open to you at the beginning. It was only for Israelites. But there's this story where Peter's going to like, he's going to have this vision, and it's a vision that eventually convinces him that Gentiles can be Christians too. And do you know what it's a vision of? Food, of course. Like, that's why I'm bringing it up. Like, we've, we're on. You guys, you guys are like, I get it, Joe. We're, we're, we get what's going on. Skip all the way to the end, the end of the Bible, this book of Revelations, and there's this beautiful picture when everything's made right and God has come back and he's brought all of his people together and it's described as a marriage supper, feast. Think about that for a second. The Bible starts with food and the Bible ends with food. And there's a whole lot of food in between. Not to mention one of the most primary ones, where Jesus says, I am the bread and I am the wine. And every month we come together and we share in the bread and the juice to remind us of Jesus' body that was broken and blood that was spared. So once again, food holds an immense amount of meaning. Now, we can't dig into all of these, You're welcome. Um, But over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at a couple of them uh, in greater detail. Today, we are going to start with laws relating to food. And I know what you're thinking of all the places that the Bible talks about food. We went to the most exciting. Uh, Nothing to get you excited about church than a little light reading in the book of Leviticus. Um, And for those who haven't read Leviticus, uh, first, I don't blame you. Um, But second, it's not very exciting. Just FYI. Um, at least at face value. So hopefully you'll find at least uh, a little bit interesting when we're done. So we're going to read a couple verses. Uh, they're, they're, they're not fun verses to read if you've read through Leviticus, but they actually have a lot to teach us. We're going to read a few of those. Um, if you want to keep reading, you can, because it goes on to talk in similar ways about other things they're allowed to eat. But these are food laws regarding what the Israelites were allowed to eat. So it's Leviticus 11, 1 through 8. You can follow along online, or it'll be up on the screen. It says this. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron... Just some context here: They're, uh, The people of Israel have been delivered out of Egypt. They're going towards the Promised Land now. God is giving them rules on how to live life differently. All right? They've been delivered from slavery. They've been set free, but not to do whatever they want. To live life differently. To be people set apart. And Moses and Aaron were the leaders at that time. And he says, "Here's what you're going to do. This is one of the ways in which you're going to live differently than the rest of the world." He says, "This. Say to the Israelites." Of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has divided hoof and that chews the cud. This has to do with uh, animal behavior. I'm not going to get into it. Verse 4, there are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. So that's in the Bible. It goes on to talk about Animals that fly and animals that swim and how you have to spill the blood of the fish before you eat it and just some really interesting rules that, you know, make for some light reading. This passage lays out um, what, what some would still call kosher laws. This is, this is one of the reasons why uh, Jewish people don't eat pig and other animals. Um, it lays out for the people of Israel what they're allowed to eat and what they aren't allowed to eat. What's considered kosher is obviously still a very significant part of the Hebrew faith. For our purposes today, we're going to be looking at it with a particular question. Why would God limit what they eat? Why allow some animals and not allow others? Now, from a cultural anthropology perspective, every culture has animals you're allowed to eat, and every culture has animals you're not allowed to eat. So in our culture, you can name some of the animals that you really shouldn't eat. People aren't going to be okay with you eat, eating horses, cats, dogs, rats, and you have to ask yourself why. Where do these rules come from? What's what's different between you know a cat and a chicken technically? But you, I know that that kind of bothers us, and there's lots of different reasons. There's lots of different cultural reasons. Well, this you know from a cultural perspective, there's some animals they were allowed to eat and some animals they won't. And it might have been uh, partly because of their culture, but the truth is is that the, there is there is um this remains a mystery. The Bible doesn't tell us why they're allowed to eat some animals and not allowed to eat others. There are some ideas and we're going to talk about those, but we don't really know. There are a couple of practical reasons. And this is one of the most popular interpretations of this passage. Some of the food food that was forbidden would have been more dangerous to eat. Uh, you don't put that up yet. Sorry. Um, some of the food that was forbidden would have been more dangerous to eat given the fact that they didn't have refrigeration and they didn't have a meat thermometer, right? This is a long time ago. You didn't have those two things. And so given that, some of the meat um, tended to carry more diseases, more parasites. So practically speaking, the biblical Old Testament diet of what you were allowed to eat and what you weren't allowed to eat could be safer. Now, um, practical reasons like this do nothing to teach us anything today, though. Um, they only allow us to say, oh, okay, that makes sense, and now, now I know that, and then let's go read a more interesting passage. So I want to set the practical reason aside. That might be one of the reasons why God allowed some and not allowed others. And I want to I consider a few theological reasons with you. There are a few possible reasons, theological reasons, and each one of these actually offers a very important lesson for us today. So it will become very practical for us today. God will be, is still asking us some of the principles behind these weird laws about what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat are still very practical and require us to change and to think differently. And here's the first possible reason, number one. The first reason that theologians have come up with is it was to teach them self-control and self-denial. Here's the thing you need to understand. The earth is not ours. The world doesn't belong to us. I know that's not a very American perspective. Like, we, I've preached on this before, and I even showed a video. Like, we were raised in a perspective, stick a flag in it, and then the land becomes ours. That's not what the Bible teaches. The earth is not ours. And, and, and one thing we know for certain, even to this day, God doesn't want us consuming everything as if we're some sort of parasite that just eats what's ever in front of us or consumes whatever we're in, you know, whether, and it goes beyond food, right? God doesn't want us to consume everything. It's really healthy to have self-control and self-denial. It's really healthy to have boundaries. You can do this, but not that. Now, here's how Paul says it. I don't have a slide for this, but in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 23, Paul says, you know, that he's talking about food and uh, what's allowed to be eaten. And in the New Testament, we'll talk, you know, you can eat whatever you want. he says, everything is uh, permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So this is the principle we live by. You can eat whatever you want, Within reason, there's probably food laws, I'm not sure. But theologically, you can eat whatever you want, but that doesn't mean you should. It's good to have boundaries. It reminds me of a couple of memes. I got a few memes here I'm gonna share. Uh, Let's put up the first one. It says this, as an adult, I always uh, forget that I can literally get in my car, buy a cake, whenever I want, and no one can stop me, amen? (laughs) Only benefit of adulting. The next slide, very similar. Someone said, turns out you could just buy a birthday cake anytime and eat it yourself. Nobody checks. I love this. And that's that's where we're at as Christians. The New Testament, we'll talk about this, opens up the food. You can eat whatever. There's no ceremonially unclean food. We'll talk about why that happens. But you can, everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Just because you can go buy a cake whenever you want doesn't mean you should. It reminds me of one more meme. Put this one up. Your scientists were so preoccupied whether or not they could, they stopped to think if they should. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Friends, we shouldn't consume everything. And it's not just for our sake. It's unhealthy. You can take that down. It's unhealthy to just consume and whatever comes across your path to consume. It's unhealthy to do that for your sake. It's unhealthy to do that for the world's sake. So one of the things we see very early in, the, in the, the people of Israel was that God was setting boundaries to what they could do. They were setting boundaries that limited their consumption of creation so that creation could have a chance to live. Oh man, how much better would our society be if we set a little bit of boundaries on what we consumed, on what we took on what we claimed as ours. One of the questions I want to ask you and for, encourage you to think about is can you name something in your life that you're allowed to do, but you should really give it up so you could have a better life in Christ? There'll always be an answer to that, I feel like. There's always kind of something, you know, I'm allowed to do that, but my life would be a little bit better. My spiritual life would be better. My physical life might be better. My emotional life might be better if I gave that thing up. Think about that. The the second reason for these food laws might have been this, and I I really love this one. Possible reason number two, um, it was to teach them that their faith should extend to every area of their lives. Think about this. There is nothing more mundane than eating. You either do it every day or the days you don't do it, you're thinking about how you're not doing it. (laughs) It's a part of our everyday life. And what you eat is impossible to hide from other people. And if you don't know what I mean, um, uh, do you have a friend who's a vegan? Have you ever had a friend who's a vegan you didn't know they were a vegan? I was uh, the vegan lifestyle is extremely healthy, by the way, and we we tried it for a hot second, and we've also tried vegetarian. And uh, then there's individuals who have gluten intolerances, and these are things you can't hide from people. If you're serious about it for health reasons, or because uh, because of uh, allergies, or because of different limitations, what you eat cannot remain a secret. There's people in our church who have various diets, and I know what they are, and people who work with them know what they are, because in a community you can't hide that. And the people of Israel would not be able to hide from the other nations and from the other people what they were allowed to eat and what they weren't allowed to eat and I think this is really beautiful there was an element of their faith that was so basic and so mundane that it was impossible to hide from other people imagine if you had something about following Jesus some part of your faith that you know what you just it always came up you couldn't hide it you couldn't you know It just was a part of everyday life. Here's something about uh, Paul in Colossians 3.17. I guess this is a Colossians 3 Sunday. He says it like this. He says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God and Father through him. Everything we do. I recently heard a story about People who grew up in church, traditional church like this, this is kind of our first time being in a traditional building. It's designed to be beautiful and feel spiritual and all this sort of stuff. They grew up in a traditional church, not this one, but another one. And um, COVID forced them to not gather on Sundays, right, for quite a while. And some churches are still not gathering. They're all online. And um, people were talking about how they felt like their relationship with God suffered because they couldn't come into the sanctuary, right, right? Now what's happening here is people find things and they attach meaning to it. So it might be a sanctuary for you. It might be, you know, a worship playlist or it might be a particular Bible. Alyssa has, Alyssa has a particular Bible that means a lot to her and she lost it for a while and she got one exactly like it but it didn't, you know, it didn't have all of her notes and highlights and she, like there's meaning attached to the actual item and so we attach meaning things to it and then when we go without those things, we feel like our relationship with God suffers. Here's what we know for certain there is nowhere you can go that is more spiritual than somewhere else. We don't come into this space because God's here. God is gathered, when we gather together, Jesus shows up in a unique way, but it's because of the community, not because of the location. When we gathered outside, God showed up. When we gathered at a movie theater, God showed up. And when you gather with your family, God shows up. And when you go alone by yourself, God shows up. Every area of your life can be spiritual. And one of the things we learned about these food laws was that our faith in God should impact every area of your life. And you're like, well, God is over here. God is a thing I do on Sunday. But these other things don't. God doesn't have anything to do with? No. The Old Testament, one of the things, reasons why God gave laws around what you eat is because even what you eat Even what you eat or anything else in the mundane life of existence should be a part of our spiritual life and what God is doing. Here's possible reason number three. I'll spend a little bit more time with this one. Possible reason number three is that it was to help them set apart, be set apart in the world. When we we talk about what it means um, to be set apart, the people of Israel were called to be holy. Holy is another word for being set apart. Uh, They were to look different. They were to act different. And choosing not to eat certain things that the other nations were eating would set them apart in very practical and very obvious ways. It's one of the things, you know, I talked about. You can't hide the fact what you eat because you're going to go eat with people and there's certain things you're not going to eat and they're going to find out about it. And so eating certain things and not eating others forced them to look and feel and to live very differently from their neighbors. Now, they couldn't hide that they were Jews. Now, this is a principle that's really important. We're allowed to eat whatever we want. Those laws have changed. But uh, God still wants us to be set apart. In the New Testament, God still wants us to be set apart. Jesus wants us to be set apart. Jesus wants to be different from the rest of the world. You can read that in John uh, fifteen nineteen. But being set apart is no longer because of what we eat. When we look at the story of Jesus, and you look at how Jesus interacted with food, he, he, one thing, he, he talks about how all food is clean. That's Mark seven nineteen, And then later, Peter and Paul declare food is clean. It acts, acts chapter 10, I think, and 1 Corinthians 10. Um, Peter has this vision that, that declares all food is clean. What, what Jesus shows us, both in his example and in his story, is that we should not be set apart We should be set apart not by what we eat, but by who we are willing to eat with. This is the shift that happens in the New Testament. We're set apart not by what we eat, but by who we are willing to eat with. Jesus was literally known as a friend of sinners and prostitutes. Why? Because those are the people he ate with. Jesus was known as the one who would eat with anybody, inviting the poor and broken to his table. Jesus made this clear. He was sitting with a group of religious leaders and in walks this sex worker into the room. And they're like, oh, Jesus, if you knew what she had done, you wouldn't let her in here. And Jesus is like, no, that's, that's not how this works. He goes on to forgive her, tell her that she's loved, and shames them for being that way with this kind of beautiful story. One time, he tells a story about a wedding feast. This wedding feast where he invites all the poor and homeless instead of their friends. The friends wouldn't come to the wedding; they were too busy. So he says, "Well, go find people in the street." And and he basically says, "This is what: if you're going to have a table and you're going to invite people to the table, go find the people no one else wants at the table and invite them to it." He did the same thing. That's why he gained a reputation eating with sinners. Jesus made it clear we should stand out and we should look different, and but not because of what we eat, but because of who we choose to eat with. Because we are willing to invite those in the margins. To our table. That's what Jesus set apart. So, my question is COVID aside, obviously, we didn't have a lot of people to our house. COVID aside, when's the last time you had someone who's been in the margins over for dinner? Real question. Thought experiment. I'm looking around. I wouldn't use this if uh, our community was a little bit different, but there's a lot of panhandlers. Um, Right now, homelessness is on the rise. Housing crisis in Columbus is insane. Uh, prices, uh, p- families, entire families are getting priced out. My, Alyssa and I, we've shared this before, live in Franklinton. We live down the street from the family shelter, so it's a shelter where families go to the homeless, like, with their kids, and the number of families that are walking by our house on the way to the shelter is just skyrocketing right now. It's just homelessness is a major problem because of the housing crisis. Um, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people are homeless. And, and my question is, um, and this is a question I wrestled with myself, and I've, I've not had a homeless individual over for dinner. Um, in our house, um, COVID aside, you know, before COVID. And I have to ask the question, why? If I'm honest with you, you know, one of the words that comes to mind, ironically, I'm just being honest with you. Unclean. Isn't that interesting? I've had, uh, individuals over to my house in the past, um, not recently. And, um, I worry about bed, bu- bed bugs. You know, I worry about being real here. These are some of the concerns. And I just find that so interesting because in the Old Testament, God says these foods are clean and these foods are unclean. And later that became projected on the people, and they started viewing people as clean and unclean. To the point that when God opened up the kingdom of God to everyone, they did it by showing Peter a bunch of food he wasn't supposed to eat. He has a vision. He's on a rooftop. Peter's the leader of the early church, and he sees all this food, and he's like, God, I can't, I can't eat this. This food is unclean. And he says, do not call unclean what I have declared clean. And the very next moment, a Gentile knocks on his door, who we would have seen as unclean, and he's like, hmm... Maybe there's a lesson here. How do you view other people? And and it's one thing to view them in theory and say God loves everyone equally. Do you invite everyone over to your house equally? Because if you say God loves everyone equally in theory, but you don't invite everyone over to your house equally, I understand there's, you know, there there are real safety concerns. I, You know, like I'm preaching, friends, so it's supposed to be a little challenging. There's, you know, there's practical ways to do this, but it's to challenge us. I have a friend, his name's Keith Wasserman. He leads a homeless shelter in Athens County, one of the few homeless shelters in Athens County. It started because he took this really seriously. This was probably 20, 30, maybe 40 years ago when he was a college student. Imagine doing this as a college student. He's near retirement now, although he'll probably keep doing this for as long as he's alive. But when he was a college student, he decided to open up his house. He bought a house or rented a house, and he opened up the basement for a a homeless shelter, and he started inviting. It was like a senior project. Talk about a senior project. I think so. Am I remembering this right? There's a few Athens people. It's close. Um, But he invited people into his basement, and it grew into this whole ministry over the years called uh, Good Works. And uh, last I talked to him, which was a couple of years ago, he was still inviting people into his house. Of course, they have a whole shelter that's a house, and they have a whole other house. They have all these, like, pr- it's grown into a program, but his house is down the street from the shelter, and he has a room there, and he uses as, as overflow. To this day, if someone's homeless and their shelter is full, at least to the last time I talked to him, I shouldn't say, I should say, last time I talked to him, when the shelter was full and they process the individual so there's like practical safety ways to do this they process the individual and de- deemed as a good person to stay at the house if it was full they'd sometimes go and stay in his house you know what's crazy about that story is how little often how little that happens that's that's the only that's the only person i know who does that do you know anyone who does that that's the only person i know <laughs> you know what i mean that's the craziest part that um, that that Christianity is the majority religion in America, and I don't know one guy who does that. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus made it really clear. Uh, and I really want us to sit with this, and I'm going to end, so the band, if the band wants to come up and get ready for the final song, I'm going to end with this. At the very beginning, God said, you know, you can eat certain things, you can't eat certain things, and it would, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I would say is because of, of you know, they were meant to stand out. They were meant to be different from everyone else, even to the point of what they ate. Like every part of their life was supposed to be different from the rest of the world. But Jesus flipped the script. His whole understanding of clean and unclean and what it meant to love people, he flipped it. He said, it's not about what you eat. He says, it doesn't what you put in your body doesn't make you unclean. It's what comes out of your body. It's what you say that makes you unclean. It's how you treat people. It's what you say to other people. It's how you think about other people. And then he shows us through example that you should stand out because of who you invite to your table who you are willing to be in relationship with. This is the invitation that Jesus has. This is good news, friends. We are invited to a life that's been transformed through relationship, relationship with people that we might never have a relationship with otherwise, a relationship that is not about the food we eat but about who we eat with. And this is how the Bible starts. It starts with the story of Adam and Eve and they weren't supposed to eat this fruit and they ate the fruit and they got in trouble. That's where it starts, but it ends with a marriage feast. It says, oh, happy are those who are invited to the marriage feast. This is where Revelation ends. This picture of heaven is a table. It starts with what you eat and it ends with who you're eating with. And so I challenge you. Are you eating with the same people that Jesus ate with? Why or why not? Let's pray. God, we come before you, and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the word, um, for the way in which you teach us, for your example. Help us to be your people. Help us every day to grow in your likeness, Lord. We are—I uh, am far from perfect, and I do and say the wrong things, and I'm such an idiot sometimes, and I am sorry. But you are good, and you are gracious and your Holy Spirit comes like wind and is able to resurrect us and pull us from death and give us life and show us a better way. Lord, you challenge us and you give us an example of community and life that is meant to change us and transform us. We give you thanks. Help us to live into it. In your name we pray. Amen.